Let us all turn together to the Word of God this evening. And maybe by now already, you've just come on the chapter that we're going to read from and in this service. The Apostle Paul had a highly successful ministry in Thessalonica. There were many conversions, powerful change in that community. And this church in Thessalonica was really thriving. It was an exemplary church where those who were saved were stand out examples to saints of God in other places. And indeed their testimony was very far-reaching. But when it came to the last days and the end time, the believers in the church at Thessalonica were very well instructed. Paul says, in fact, I'm just going to look now down to chapter 5, verse 2. He speaks there of not only what they know about the return of Christ, but the standard that they have attained to in that knowledge which they possessed. He says, you yourselves know, and that's a great thing to come that far, because there are some Christians maybe in Lisburn tonight I hope not in this congregation, but certainly in the wider community, who are not altogether clear on matters respecting the Lord's return. But in terms of the church at Thessalonica, Paul is able to use this striking expression, ye yourselves know perfectly. And uh, that's a higher standard of knowledge. The word perfectly there would mean uh, knowing clearly and accurately the things pertaining to the Lord's coming. And the substance of Paul's preaching about the Lord's return in the end time is certainly found in these two letters to the church at Thessalonica. We're reading there now in First Thessalonians 4 to begin with. We'll read on into the following chapter a little way, but we'll begin here 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. Don't forget when you go home, if you have opportunity, to scan these verses again and see if you can come to that place in your life and I in your thinking where you say, I not only know, but I know perfectly. I know perfectly well what the Lord said. That would be a great step forward, even for us. May the Lord grant that. Verse 13, chapter 4. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others, which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Sleeping here has to do with the body, not the soul. Because the soul of the believer at death passes immediately into the presence of Christ the King. But the body lies in the dust of death, awaiting the day when the trumpet shall sound. Look at uh, verse 15. But this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain 
unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or shall not go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump or the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. It's a chapter 5. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Those times that have to do with the end of the age and the coming of the Lord, all those things that are of concern to the Christian, surely. But, but isn't it remarkable? Isn't it remarkable? And he said, you don't need me to write to you now. Why? Why does he not need him to write to them? Because, he says in verse 2, you have a very clear knowledge. You have a very clear knowledge, an accurate picture. So let me just go over that verse again, verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, the ungodly, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye brethren, there's a difference for the Christian, you see. But ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You're all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. But let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are off the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Praise the Lord for the reading of his word. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of the word this hour.
Now we're going to take our Bibles, and there's quite a number of Scripture texts that we're going to consider tonight as we close our little series on the subject of our home in heaven. Tonight our subject is very simply, how do we get to heaven from this earth? What's the actual process of leaving this scene of time and then by the grace of God finding ourselves one day within the celestial city itself. How do we get to heaven? Let's unite our hearts together in prayer. Let's seek the Lord earnestly and let's invite the Spirit of God to really glorify the Savior and make the presence of God known. Don't want to go through the form of just a sermon or closing out a meeting by preaching. We want to know the presence of the Lord and He will come as God's people seek Him and invite him. So let's pray. Father, we thank thee for everything that has gone on before already in this meeting. Thank thee, Lord, for the singing of thy praise and for the seeking of thy face in prayer. We thank thee, O God, for the announcements as well, and we thank thee, Lord, for plans and purposes in the will of God that have been made for the days and weeks that lie ahead. Loving God, we pray that thou wilt be glorified in all of these endeavors. We thank thee for the reading of thy word. And as we come to it now, we pray in Jesus' name that thou wilt glorify thy Son, encourage every child of God, and challenge those and draw those who do not know thee, even to the Savior's feet. Do it tonight, Lord, we pray, for thy glory. Grant the help of heaven, the anointing of the Spirit of God, and may everything dovetail together for God's glory and for the honor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We've been asking many questions in recent weeks about heaven. Who goes to heaven? The inhabitants of heaven. Those who are washed in the Lamb's blood. Those who are wedded as the Lamb's bride. And those who are written in the Lamb's book. And then what will heaven be like, the architecture of heaven? And we thought about the celestial city, we thought about the walls, we thought about the gates, we thought about the throne, the river, the tree, and so many different aspects of heaven. Then what will be in heaven? And we considered some of the things that will not be in heaven, and then other things that certainly will be in heaven. Will we know one another in heaven? And then what will we do in heaven? And then how can we be sure, how can we be certain that we're going to heaven? We thought about the work of the Savior, the words of Scripture, our walk in sanctification, and the witness of the Spirit. And tonight we're asking one final question regarding heaven. How do we actually get there? What's the process of leaving this world and entering into heaven and all that concerns that? It's a very big subject and certainly a very important question. What is the process of our trip from this world into heaven itself and then at last into the eternal kingdom of God? If you were traveling in the morning to Spain, you would want to be sure that everything was in place. And if you'd certainly never been before, you would want to know as much as possible about your journey. You would make preparation this side of going to the airport. You'd purchase your tickets. You'd make a booking reservation 
on the plane and in a hotel. You'd make sure that your passport is up to date. You'd maybe have your health insurance looked at as well. You would pack your cases. You would have a taxi, perhaps organized, to take you to the airport. You would certainly arrive there early. You would book your luggage in. You would book yourself in. You would make your way to the departure lounge. You would get onto the plane. The plane would take off and land you on the other side. And maybe you would have a, a transfer ready at the airport to take you to the hotel. And there's many details concerning traveling even on this earth from one place to another. And certainly there are many details for any individual leaving this world and entering one day by the grace of God into heaven. What happens whenever a believer dies? How is it that part of them goes to be with the Lord, but the, the body is buried? And, and then what happens on the resurrection day at the return of Christ? And where does the judgment tie into all of this? And the glorification of the body. There are many questions that many believers have regarding all of these important issues. And so tonight we're just going to give a simple whistle-stop tour with regards to the believer's trip to heaven. And I'm going to ask you tonight to listen very carefully because it's so important tonight as we finish this little series that you are sure, that you are certain that you're going, that you're ready to leave this scene of time if the Lord should so call you, even tonight, that nothing has to be set in order that your sins are forgiven, your soul is saved, and your destiny is absolutely 100% settled. How will we get to heaven? Our expedition to heaven. Seven words tonight that I want to leave with you regarding this important subject. And the first word is simply salvation. That's an important word. Salvation is God's act of deliverance, Salvation is God's act of rescue. And I trust tonight that every single one of us in this meeting and those who are listening presently online and others that maybe will listen at another time understand this clearly, that in order for you to get to heaven someday, it is absolutely critical, absolutely immutable and imperative that you're really saved, born again of the Spirit of God. In Acts 4.12, God's servant, the apostle Peter, said concerning our Savior, the Lord Jesus, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, listen to the words, whereby we must be saved. It's one of those imperative statements in the Bible. We must be saved. And the Son of God himself in John 3, as he spoke to Nicodemus about eternal things, he said, except a man is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Our sin needs to be dealt with, the soul within us needs to be redeemed, and our nature needs to be changed by the grace of God. And we must be brought, firstly, into God's family. 
before at last we can be brought someday into God's heaven. The Bible calls it being saved. The Word of God calls it being converted. And salvation has been accomplished for us upon the cross. These are elementary truths, and you'll forgive me for covering old ground, but we can never really apologize for emphasizing these truths, that it was at the cross at Calvary, and there alone that the Son of God opened a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. Friend, tonight can I remind you that the Son of God had to go to a cross and shed His precious blood and die as a sacrifice, offer up His life as a sacrifice for our sins if we're ever someday to find ourselves in heaven. I trust tonight that that thrills the heart of every professing Christian here tonight. As you think afresh about the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There's nothing greater in all the world than to consider and to contemplate the cross work of our blessed Savior, to think about his dying love, his eternal love, so freely and openly demonstrated upon a cross whenever he paid the price for our sins fully and finally and completely and forever. And to know that it was at the cross that my salvation was secured. And it's not about anything that I have done, but it's all about what the Son of God has done for me through His dying love. Redemption, salvation has been accomplished by the Son of God, but then that salvation has to be applied by the Spirit of God. Lovely to know the gospel Wonderful to have the knowledge of the Savior going to that cross and dying for our sins. But can I ask you tonight, has salvation been applied to you personally? Has the Spirit of God opened your heart, drawn you to the cross, enabled you to confess your sins and turn from your sins, and personally, as an individual, put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the Spirit of God tonight bearing witness with your spirit that yes, you're born again, you're truly converted, you're really saved, you're really and truly a child of God. Is salvation, I'm asking you, a reality in your life this evening? Can you look back to a time whenever you were brought to the cross, whenever you trusted the Savior, and can I ask you tonight, do you love him tonight? And are you looking forward someday to being with him? I trust tonight that that is your experience. Have you received Christ as your Savior? John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them give he the authority or the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. And the reality of salvation is seen in the knowledge, a working and experiential knowledge in a person's life of God, a relationship with God. John 17, the Savior prayed in verse number 3 and said to his Father, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Do you know Jesus Christ tonight personally? Do you know God tonight as your Father? 
Is it as real as that? A real relationship with God. First thing that you need to understand is you need to come to the cross. Have the sin question, the sin problem dealt with. Salvation. The second word, touched on it last Lord's Day evening, sanctification. Why is it that whenever somebody trusts in the Lord, God doesn't immediately come, generally speaking, and take that person out of this world and transport them immediately to heaven? Why do we spend some time or other between conversion and heaven on this earth? Why is it that the Lord wants us to live the Christian life? Why doesn't he just come immediately whenever we say, Lord, would you save me? Would you forgive me? Why doesn't he just immediately reach down and lift us out of this world and bring us immediately and directly into heaven? This is where this whole subject of sanctification comes in. At the cross, we are justified, but we are also sanctified. And that's a process because in this world, God wants us to live to his glory. Friends, tonight, that's why we were created in the first place. That's the whole purpose of life. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Adam failed in that, and consequently, all of us have not lived to the glory of God. But whenever you're saved and you're born again, God gives us the ability to a degree to live to the glory of God and to fulfill the very purpose for which we were created. And we can never fulfill that purpose unless we are converted. He wants us to live to his glory. And then he also wants us to be a witness for him in this world, to live to his glory and to tell others. Do you remember the man of the Gadarenes? We read about him in Mark's gospel, chapter 5. Oh, his life was just a life of absolute futility and torment. He was as close to hell as it was possible to be without actually being in it. And then a day came whenever he met the Savior. And his life was radically changed in a moment of time, The Lord delivered him, cleansed him, clothed him, set him free, settled his mind and gave him a peace in his heart and in his life. And that man was found by his neighbors, sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And the first thing that he said to the Lord was, I want to be with you right now. I want to go with you. And I suppose every Christian could say the same to some degree or other. Just want to go to be with the Lord having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But the Lord said to that man, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things God has done for thee and how he has had compassion on thee. I want you to be my witness. I want you to tell others. Rather than immediately coming to be with me, I want you to live in this world and to tell others about my mercy and grace and salvation in your life. I wonder tonight, are we doing that? Are we living to God's glory? And are we telling others about the Savior and witnessing to Him? And then the Lord also wants us, by our lifestyle, to show forth to this world what salvation really is. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, I want you to listen carefully to these words. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 9. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people. And Peter there is certainly making it very clear that believers in Jesus Christ, Christians, are to be different from the man of the world and the spirit of the age. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of nature's darkness and into his marvelous light. And how you've obtained mercy. I wonder tonight, does the world look at us day by day and say, there's a person that's different. There's a person that talks differently. There's an individual who lives differently. There's an individual who's got different desires. There's somebody that's got hope in their life and assurance in their life and love in their hearts, showing forth his salvation day by day. And also to show to the world the reality of grace, saving grace and sustaining grace and sufficient grace. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 7 that in the ages to come he might show his exceeding, the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith. And there is another reason why the Lord doesn't immediately take us to heaven as soon as we're converted. He wants us to live to his glory. He wants us to be his witnesses. He wants us to show forth his salvation. He wants us to prove the reality of grace. And all the while, he's preparing us for heaven. As we live in this world, we get a little bit closer to home every single day. And the spirit of the age begins to lose its luster. Like the little children's chorus says, little by little, every day. Little by little in every way, Jesus is changing me. Corrie Ten Boom, towards the end of her life, said that throughout her Christian journey, she had learned to hold the things of this world with a very loose grip because they didn't really have the same hold on her. She was gathering speed for heaven and the lights of heaven were growing brighter day by day. Sanctification is the only visible evidence of saving grace in a person's life. Is salvation a reality in your life? Is sanctification a reality in your life? And then after that, there's another word, the word separation. There comes a time, dear friend, and you know it well, you know it to be true in your heart, there comes a time whenever all of us will have to die. What is death? Death is simply separation where the Lord separates us from time and brings us into eternity. Whenever the Lord separates the soul from the body. And the Bible says that death is universal. Second Samuel 14, 14, we must, we all must needs die. Job spoke about death and says it's the house appointed for all living. Paul said in Romans 5, 12, By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Death is universal. Death is inescapable. 
It's appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. Ecclesiastes 8, verse number 8 says, There is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death. That invisible spiritual part of you is something that you personally cannot contain to your body. You cannot hold on to your spirit. Whenever God calls you, and he calls you from time into eternity, as he said to that rich young fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. He was absolutely powerless to stand against the death angel. And the Bible says that every single one of us have a soul. And the soul is the real you. We say that so often. It's the seat of the personality. It comprises of the will, the intellect, the emotions, the real you, the real individual that lives inside your body. And death is the separation of the body from the soul. Having a desire to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. In Genesis chapter 35 and 18, the Word of God speaks about the death of Rachel. And it says, as her soul was in departing, her soul was leaving her body, and the body would remain lifeless and ultimately be buried. But the soul, the real individual, has left and gone somewhere out into eternity, having a desire to depart, Paul said, and to be with Christ, which is far better. At death, there's a separation. The soul is separated from the body. The soul leaves the body. And the soul of the believer goes into heaven, into paradise, to be with Christ. Remember the dying thief, the penitent thief upon the cross? Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the Savior said immediately, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And that was speaking about that invisible, that eternal part, the soul. So whenever a believer dies, the soul goes to be with Christ. The body is buried, sometimes cremated, and it awaits the resurrection. And that season, whenever the soul is absent from the body and present with the Lord, is often referred to by theologians as the intermediate state. And the soul is very much alive at that time, very much real and conscious. In fact, we could say that the soul is every bit as real, maybe even more real than the body that it lives in. This body is just an earthly tabernacle, an earthly dwelling, an earthly tent, but the real person is on the inside. Luke chapter 16 says that there was a certain rich man, clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. And there was a beggar laid at his gate named Lazarus, full of sores. Came to pass that the rich man died and was buried. But in hell lifted up his eyes. The soul is as real as the body. And so it was with Lazarus. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried, the soul was carried by the angels into Abram's bosom. And the body is said to sleep. The body is laid to rest for a season. 
But all the while the soul, separated for that time from the body, is real and is out there in God's great eternity. The Bible speaks about the spirits of just men made perfect presently in heaven. Can I ask you another question? Have you ever thought about your soul? The scripture, the Savior asks the question, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? Isn't that a remarkable statement, a remarkable question? The Savior is saying that even just one human soul is worth more than all of the material wealth in the entire world. Your soul tonight is valuable. The Bible says the redemption of the soul is precious. God in heaven cares about you. He loves you. And he's concerned about your soul. Have you ever thought about your soul? I wonder tonight, is your soul saved? Salvation, sanctification, separation. Then another word, resurrection. The Bible speaks about a great day of resurrection. In the gospel, according to St. John, and in the fifth chapter of John's gospel, our Lord and Savior himself speaks about this great resurrection day. The body has been buried, but God hasn't finished with the body. In John 5 and verse number 28, the Lord says, Marvel not at this. Don't be surprised about this. Don't be alarmed about this. Marvel not at this. The hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. The prophet Daniel spoke about the same thing in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. A time of resurrection. Whenever the bodies of those that sleep and have been buried or cremated or even lost at sea will be raised up again and reunited with the soul and the soul and body will be brought together Again, the bodies of all who have ever been buried, cremated, or lost will be raised up, and there's no escaping it. Revelation chapter 20, John, the great apostle, he says in verse number 13, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And many say, well, how, how could God resurrect up a body of someone that's been dead for maybe thousands of years? Or somebody that's been lost at sea and their, their body has been decayed and corrupted and it's long gone? Or even someone that's been cremated and their, their earthly remains have been burned? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that every body... Every physical body has been given a seed. There is a little seed, if you like, that comprises all of the blueprint for the human body. And out of that little seed, God is able to resurrect every body of every individual that has ever lived. I suppose modern science would call that little seed DNA. Talk a lot nowadays about a person's DNA. The, the genetic information that is inside the 
every cell that makes up the human body, every human cell, millions and millions and millions of them, have got within that cell DNA. And the DNA is like an instruction manual. It's like a blueprint for the human body. DNA is a a kind of instruction manual as to how every human being's individual bodies are to be built. Now, every human being has got DNA, and our DNA, 99.9% almost identical. But there's a little bit left over that makes your body entirely different from everybody else's. Some people are tall and some are smaller. Some people have got blue eyes, some have got brown eyes, some green, some gray. Some have dark hair, some light hair. Some are male and some are female. And we've got different statures and and we've all got different bodies, but our bodies are all alike. But at the same time, our bodies are, are all unique. And we are told that inside every single human cell, that the DNA in each individual body from cell to cell is exactly the same. And there are some six feet of DNA inside every cell within your body. That equates to somewhere in the region of 10 billion miles of DNA inside your body. And each little strand of DNA that's like a little twisted ladder just gives all of the biological information concerning your physical body. Ten billion miles of DNA. That's enough to travel to the sun and back 61 times. Is it any wonder that the Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made? And in 1 Corinthians it says to every body is given a little seed. And in that seed is all of the information that makes up the characteristics of your body. And out of that little seed, God is able to resurrect the body. In Hanover, in Germany, uh, an atheist by the name of Caroline von Ruling had her body buried. She scoffed at the Bible. Just before she died, she says, This is the end of me. Bury me. I shall never die. And she gave special orders for the construction of her grave. She was going to be buried in a a granite tomb. And a large granite slab would be cemented in place and she would be buried under it. And nobody would ever remove it. And on top of that granite slab, a huge granite block and an inscription, this burial place is my house for eternity. It shall never be opened. And for almost 100 years, that grave, sad as it was with that inscription, it endured decades of rain and wind and sleet and snow and ice and scorching heat. And then, unknown to any human being, the wind carried a little birch seed into a small crack that had developed in the concrete between the granite and the slabs that made up her tomb. And that little seed germinated. It began to take root. A little sapling began to grow. A little shoot appeared between the the concrete and the granite slab. And within a number of years, that granite slab was pushed to one side and the grave was opened all because of a little birch seed that the wind had carried and at last it had found a resting place. 
remarkable story. And yet there's a day coming whenever in spite of us, every human grave will be opened and there will be a great resurrection. And this resurrection is going to happen whenever Jesus Christ comes back again. The Bible says the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel, the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's speaking of their bodies. And then we which are alive for me and shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, that this will happen at the last trump. This world has not seen the last of the Son of God. He's coming back again. And I believe tonight the stage is constantly being set. World history and events in the world around us are pointing to the coming again of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible says, The coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And whenever, if you ever go to a stage show and the stage has been set and all of the pieces are in place and the actors are there, what happens? Whenever you're gathered, the lights are put out. The curtain rises, the lights go on, and the whole show commences. And I believe that whenever the final piece has been put in and the stage has been set, the Word of God says that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and the Son of God is coming back again and there's going to be this great day of resurrection. Salvation, sanctification, separation, then resurrection, and then for every Christian, another word, glorification. Whenever that body is reunited with the soul, rises to meet the Lord in the air, the Bible says, Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that whenever he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. First John chapter 3 and verse number 2. Did you know tonight, believer, that the Son of God on that cross suffered and bled and died and shed his blood, not only to redeem your soul, but also to redeem your body? Whenever Paul was writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, and they were living very slack, loose Christian lives, not like the church at Thessalonica, Paul reminded him, he says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Spirit of God which is in you? Therefore glorify God in your bodies. Ye are not your own, ye are bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies which are the Lord's. We need to understand that whenever we come to Christ, that His blood redeemed our souls, but also redeemed our bodies. And there's coming a day whenever he returns and our bodies will be raised up, they will be transformed and changed and made into his likeness. Paul says this corruption shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality and the Lord shall change this vile body that it might be fashioned like unto his glorious body. There's coming a day whenever our spirits and souls will be made perfect in holiness. And then after that, at the resurrection day, these bodies will be changed and made like unto his body. Perfect 
and incorruptible, just like His, and yet at the same time, entirely unique in and of themselves. Our bodies will be like His, but we will each have a unique body. It's not that we'll all be clones in heaven. It's not that we'll all look exactly the same. Every single one of us will still be unique. Paul covers this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 40. He says there are celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. The glory of the celestial is one. The glory of terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. Listen to it. One star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection bodies like his body in their properties, but at the same time each body will be unique. Incidentally, the soul's of those who have died without Christ, their bodies will be resurrected as well. And the Bible in the book of Isaiah, chapter 66 and verse 24, sheds a little bit of light, I believe, on what the resurrection body of the unconverted will be like. It says there, And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. Remember the Lord spoke about that when he spoke about eternity for the unsaved. And it says, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. That's what the Word of God says about the resurrection body of the unregenerate. But for the believer, there's going to be glorification. And then another word that comes to mind regarding our trip from this world into the next. We've thought about salvation, sanctification, separation, resurrection, glorification. Well, what about adjudication? Standing someday at the judgment bar of God. Whenever the Savior comes back again, resurrection, body and soul together, glorification, the body changed. And then we will stand someday and give an account. And we will stand at the judgment bar. Romans 14 and verse 12. Every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. It's appointed unto man once to die. After this the judgment. It used to be said, all roads lead to Rome. That's not true. But all roads have inevitably lead to the judgment. Many Christians forget this that believers will stand someday and give an account, body and soul together, before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says that as many stand at the judgment seat of Christ, they will receive a reward. Paul talked about an incorruptible crown that fadeth not away. And the Son of God is coming back to resurrect and also to reward His servants. But in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 15, the Apostle Paul says that many believers will suffer loss in that day. They will be saved, but as by fire, saved by the skin of their teeth, and they'll have absolutely nothing to show for their life on this earth, even as a believer, because every man's work shall be manifest, the day shall declare it, 
And if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, things that are dug for, that are below the surface, he shall receive a reward. But if any man build with wood and hay and stubble, they shall be burned up, but he himself shall be saved, yet as by fire he'll suffer loss. You know, every single one of us, I believe, will look the Savior in the face. And as the old hymn says, by and by when I look in his face, I'll wish I had given him more. You know, whenever it says in Revelation 21, 4, all tears shall be wiped away from their eyes, it's my conviction that that is after the judgment day for believers. I believe there'll be hot stinging tears in our eyes whenever we see our Savior and his glory and his majesty and his beauty and we see his love for us and we look into his lovely face and we realize that we wasted so much of our time and so much of our talent and so much of our ability whenever a world was lost and going to hell and we didn't really take salvation and Christianity as seriously as we should. And we didn't really get to know him as well as we should have. And we'll wish somehow we had given him more. Incidentally, believers will give an account, but unbelievers as well will stand before the great white throne judgment. That's where you're headed tonight, unconverted friend in the meeting. John says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat upon it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there's nowhere to hide for the unconverted whenever they stand at the great white throne judgment. I wonder tonight, is that where you will be? Final day of adjudication, whenever you at last give an account. One last word. We've thought about salvation, sanctification, separation, resurrection, glorification, adjudication. One last word, and it just ties the whole thing together. And it's the word culmination. Revelation chapter 21. After all of these events that we've mentioned already, John says in verse 21, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And this is God's eternal kingdom. This world, as we presently know it, and the fashion thereof is passed away. And there's a new heavens and a new earth. And the Son of God has revealed Himself for glo from glory. And there's been a great resurrection. And all that have come to Christ are glorified in His presence. And God sets up this great eternal kingdom and all things come together. And this is the beginning of eternity. Time shall be no more. Thousand-year reign is ended. And we enter into this glorified, glorious city, New Jerusalem. And as we have said in nights gone by, there's a new heavens, plural, and a new earth where indwelleth righteousness. And the very hub of it all is the celestial city itself, New Jerusalem. And central to the New Jerusalem is the throne. 
and central to the throne is the Lamb. For the Lamb tonight is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. For the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Grace has led me safe thus far. Grace will lead me home. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. But can I ask you in closing, are you ready for heaven? Have you started out in the journey? Have you come to the cross? Have you trusted Christ? Have you entered in through that straight gate, that wicked gate, that narrow gate, onto the narrow way that leads to heaven? I wonder tonight, are you really saved? R.A. Torrey, the great evangelist, whenever he used to travel in America and Australia and through Britain and even here in our province in the city of Belfast, when he preached at his great crusades, so often had a great, a, a great text above his head that simply said the words, Get right with God. Get right with God. This is your opportunity again tonight to get right with God, to come to Christ, to come to the Savior, to make no delay. Here in His Word, He's shown us the way. How's, the, how, how's He shown us? He simply says, repent, turn from your sins, and believe the gospel. Turn from your sins, and trust in the Savior, and enter into newness of life. 599 is our closing hymn this evening. 599. You know these words so well. There are loved ones in the glory. Whose dear forms you often miss, but when you close your earthly story, will you join them in their bliss? 599. We're just going to sing the first three verses together. Verses 1, 2, and 3 of 599. And we'll stand to sing and then remain standing, please, for prayer. But if we can help anybody, pray with you, open the Scriptures to you. Don't leave without getting right with God. Make this your night and trust in the Savior. 599, the first three verses, please.
pray together. Let's seek the Lord. Heavenly Father, we praise and bless Thee for Your grace, mercy, and love toward us. We thank You, Lord God, that from beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. And we just give Thee all the praise and all the glory for what the Son of God has done for us through His life and death and resurrection. We praise Thee, Lord, that He's coming back again. And Lord God, we thank Thee for the hope of heaven. And we rejoice, O God, that, Lord, the more we live in this world, Lord, the more, Lord, our hearts are drawn towards our eternal home. Thank You, Lord God, for the privilege of being saved. Help us, Lord, to live to Thy glory. And grant, Lord, that we might bear good testimony to our Savior. Speak, Lord, tonight to those who do not know Thee. May there be a drawing to the cross. Hear and answer prayer, we ask it in the Savior's name.